Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. We're back, we're back Mark, here we are again, it is Brendan here with Mark, the Vet Gurus, and thank you everyone for all your emails, vetgurus at gmail.com, and don't forget to visit our website, vetgurus.com, and also maybe have a little think about supporting us, throwing us a dollar or two, Um, you can get the link at vetgurus.com, which is the Patreon Dot com website isn't it mark and you can become a sponsor for us um or a little supporter and it helps pay for all our fees all our internet fees and keeps us going not that we'd stop um it'd probably be the last thing i'd stop mark <laughs> <laughs> hey, Brendan, little... I was gonna, one of the other things i was gonna yeah. say, um you know i know we've been doing a bit of research about um you know in the typical way that we do things we started this We've done it for ages, and now we've thought we better like learn a little bit about it. So I was um I was going to sing out to everyone to make sure they rate us because um uh, not just uh, listening to us that's not enough, Brendan. That's not nearly enough. The um the, the services we use to uh, spread our podcast around depend heavily on the ratings to um to uh, you know. To let it let uh, to to recommend us to um, potential new listeners. So, um, give us the thumbs up, or give us the uh, five out of five, or, or even give us one out of five if you think that's what we're worth. But um, uh, subscribe and give us a bit of a rating as well as go to that Patreon site. And, um, that would be great. And um, make sure you spread the word, yeah, with all your veterinary colleagues and veterinary nurses slash technicians because the more the merrier, Mark. Um, we um, we enjoy talking into into the air, into the internet, but we even we enjoy even more receiving feedback, don't we? And we get some great emails and some comments and it is it makes us feel good. Um, it makes us feel good, doesn't it, Mark? What have you been up to this um, last week or so? I know this is a this is one of our sort of pre-recorded episodes that that will be projected sometime in the future. So I'm not quite sure when we're going to release this one. But what have you been up to, Mark? Well, it's been a little bit of a, a you know, the, it is going to be in the future when this is broadcast. And um, but it is just spring. It's spring here in Newcastle at the moment, Brendan. And so I've been sort of like cutting the dead leaves off the plants and uh, and looking at uh, at uh, all my I've got a bit of a collection of um, cycads of different species and um, and so it was with some surprise I noticed that um, some succulents and cycads were stolen from our botanic gardens up here in Newcastle and also in Sydney, Brendan. Some people have been lobbing into the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney and knocking off the exotic plants and um i was wondering why your garden was looking so good i know i know (laughs) (laughs) and you do travel down to sydney very regularly on a regular basis with the ute (laughs) yes um so so how is your book coming on now you must tell our listeners mark i remember many years ago you did mention to me that you were going you were you were in the process of writing a book 
Um, tell me, Mark. <laughs> tell our listeners. Well, well. You've, you've opened a can of worms there, Brendan. Um, I did. I did uh, suggest that I had been collecting stories and and information about um, grass trees, and I was going to put it together into some form of publication. I don't know um, what, where, where, when I spoke to you last, where I was up to, but um, uh, as usual, it's one of those jobs that's festering away on the back burner. Maybe every once in a couple of months I uh, pull out a few new photographs or find a new story. There's an amazing amount of information about these plants and people are very interested in them, but, geez, I haven't got to the point where, um, where I can actually... Uh, say that I've published anything yet, Brendan. But um, Grass Trees, that will be the book I publish whenever I do publish one. I, uh, well, I'd love to say I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath, Mark. <laughs> I'd be holding, I'd, I think I would be able to hold my breath well, we, that we, long. We I think it was about six years ago that I first, <laughs> that I last asked you about this particular publication. So, well, um, I, I'll, I'll be honoured to um, have a look at a copy of it and I'm sure it will have some fantastic photos in there, Mark, which reminds me of, I finally got out a little bit more to take some pics um, with both my cameras the digital and also the old film camera. So um, I was cranking the little 124 mat film through the camera and um, did some a bit, a little bit of um, landscape, um, a couple of landscape shots, Mark. And I'll have to forward them to you. I may even put one up as as a um, as a main picture for for one of our um, weekly podcasts, Mark. So yeah, I think there's something about the the look of the old. Um, film um, medium format um, film um, productions that 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 you can't reproduce no matter what you do with the software with the modern cameras despite the fact that you you you, you take the picture on the film you have it processed um, um, analog and then you digitize it um, and, and uh, put it put it through a scanner it, it still has a I don't know. I, I just think it has that, that oldie worldy look and a bit bit of a romantic sort of look with it. And um, there's just something about the, I think the latitude you get with the mark, the the depth you get with the the, the, the film that you can't reproduce even with the fifty megapixel cameras of today. So yeah, so you are such a nostalgic, Brendan. Just like looking back on the the positive <laughs> features of the past and drawing them into the present. Looking yeah. with your rose coloured glasses. No, but that's in all, right. In all that's right. Yeah, that's right. And those glasses are getting uh, more, more, more um, opaque as time goes on, as my cataracts develop, Mark. Um, so that's that's the disappointing thing. I'm going to jump into the first news story, Mark. Enough about us. And that I've got. Well, I'm on. I want to talk about goats, Mark. Um, I, I like goats. Not that we've got one here, but it is one, one animal that if I did end up with a small hold in a, a couple of um, acres or hectares, I'd I probably would get a goat or two because I just find them fascinating creatures, Mark. And we may have spoken about something similar to this. Um, in a previous podcast that you um, picked up a news story on, but it's one closer to home here, and it's about the goats that clear weeds from East Link, and East Link is a a tollway, um, freeway or highway here in um, in Melbourne that um, has a lot of um, weeds on the side of the tollway where they built the tollway through, and and they've um, as a little promotional video from the East Link company. Um, 
talking about the landscaping team that have recruited goats to help um, eat some of these weeds, especially in the really rocky um, areas um, alongside the freeway there. And I think it's a great, great idea. And one of the main reasons why they did it is to avoid having to do to um, use herbicides, um, which I think is a good thing. And the, and the goats are, are pretty good at killing the weeds or eating the blackberries and those sorts of um, weeds that um, that they want to get rid of there. It is something that would be quicker to remove by just spraying the area, but um, they've decided not to and they've gone with the biological, biological goat control mark and I think that's a good thing. And it leads into my second story. We're going to talk about some of the, some of the things you may or may not know about goats at all chat about shortly after your first story mark so i think that's a good news story you know using goats they do like to chomp on things don't they mark i I think um we've got a couple of clients who use goats for precisely that purpose that they have um a few acres and uh they don't have the resources to keep the overgrowth of plants under control and and the goats do an awesome job and they're they're animals that are um, social, they uh, they interact, but they they quirky, Brendan. They don't. They're certainly not the same as our um, our traditional companion animals, and and uh, the things they do are really entertaining. So I can understand. I, I can see you. I can see you writing your book, living off a few acres once you retire, and having your pet goat wander up um, late in the afternoon to get a little treat. Yes, although I need to convince Annie because she um, she's not super keen on goats. She sees the she sees the um, value in them, but she just says I don't like them. They have crazy eyes, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I can see her point there. So, what's your first story, Mark? Um, I've got a story about uh, Nanook. Um, Nanook is a uh, Alaskan husky who has a tendency um, she, uh, lives. Uh, um, in Alaska, about 35 miles south of Anchorage, um, and has a habit of wandering off and having, um, well, adventures. And in this particular story, um, Manok's headed off and been wandering around the uh, Crow Pass Trail um, when she came across Amelia, uh, who had um, done a bit of a solo, planned a bit of a solo three-day hike, um, but unfortunately, um, uh, she uh, she was uh, she had a bit of a slide down um, one of the snow-covered mountains and crashed into a boulder and um, and was stuck and bruised and battered and unable to um, to orient herself. But just as she sort of came around. Um, who should be there but uh, Nanook, who um, decided it was a good thing to sit by uh, Amelia and make sure that she was okay, and uh, when she was, um, lead her back to the trail, then stay with her through the night um, and uh, help her wander along to um, the uh, wander through Eagle River Crossing, which uh, um, would have been a little bit dangerous. Um uh, Nanook was able to uh, help Amelia get through the water there um, and uh, uh, Amelia activated her emergency beacon and 
um, and they're not waited with her until the rescue has arrived by helicopter. So a genuine um, Alaskan uh, 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 husky um, rescue story. Um, but Nanook has done this um, sort of wandering around uh, the, the uh, Crow Pass there, earning the unofficial title of being the Crow Pass guide dog um, regularly, apparently. So um, I think it's a, it speaks to the independence of, um, of these Arctic breed dogs that, uh, that they don't necessarily, um, you know, uh, need a pack or a leader or they'll, they're just the sorts of dogs who wander off and choose the things that they need to do themselves. And, um, and yeah, it's an awesome story that um, someone who was in danger was lucky enough to have Nanooks save them. Yes, and in true uh, internet fashion, Mark Nanook now has its own Facebook site, and I've just flicked over to that site now. Um, Nanook Nanooki Swift is the name of the Facebook site, and um, I think it's got. A, I'm a little bit disappointed, Mark. I'm potentially a little bit angry. Um, oh no! Because. <laughs> Nanook now, you can now purchase, um, there's a couple of T-shirt designs there for um, that you can purchase. One is I heart Nookie, I love Nookie. And the other uh, one there is Nanook Guardian of the Last Frontier T-shirt. And I, I, I was quite enjoying your little story there, Mark, of Nanook. And, and certainly Nookie has saved several people by the look of things, but um Getting a little bit too commercial for me, Mark. Where do you draw the line? Oh, um, there's always this? someone keen to cash in on someone else's success. Yes, um, although it must be. Uh, the, the, let, reading through the rest of that um, article you had there, Mark, they were um, he, um, the owner was considering attaching a GoPro to Nanook so they could record a documentary of all the shenanigans Nanook gets up to. But, um, yes, yeah, so... Sorry to end it on a downer there, Mark, but um, <laughs> yes, when I, when I clicked through to that Facebook site, I thought, oh, this will be interesting. There'll be some fun little stories and photos. And, I, and then I saw the, the T-shirts that they were planning to sell for Nanook and I thought perhaps we're going a little bit too far. Um, not as far as um, I'm going to talk about with goats though, Mark. I'm just going to um, tell you about some really good news things about goats that you may or may not know about, Mark. Um, and I think you probably know most of these with the brain of that you have in your cranium. There, you've you're um you're always outsmart me in the quiz nights. That's for sure. Um, baby goats or oh, goats for the first live livestock species to be domesticated ten thousand years ago. And um, point number two, Mark, really piqued my interest. Goats prefer happy faces. And they tend to avoid people with angry faces. See, maybe I'm not that angry, Mark, because okay. when I go and look at some of the local goats in the petting farms and that around here, or I used to anyway, when I took the girls when they were much younger, um, the goats used to seem to like to come up for a bit of a pat. So um, perhaps I just wasn't quite as angry and bitter as I am now, Mark, um, as, um, as I was in those days. Um, but, yeah, there's some interesting little points about goats here and the obvious ones um, that, that most people think about them, that they are pretty hardy animals. Um, 
the two types of goats, the domestic goats and the mountain goats. And yeah, I've I've seen some amazing footage of those mountain goats. They are they are incredible the way they cope with and, and the way they just manage to to stand and, and run and jump on the side of those those rocky mountain areas. And um, I think um, some of the Attenborough films have some amazing footage of the the mountain goats um, um, doing that sort of thing as well. And here's Annie's yes. too, Brendan. And number six is uh, that some people are creeped out by the odd side slip pupils in goats. There eyes. we go. Yes. Researchers say slide slanted eyes typically belong to a grazing prey. It gives them a wider field of vision, but they don't absorb as much light from above. This stops the sun from blinding their view around them and lets them keep an eye out for predators. So that's why it's evolved. But yes, um, she's certainly number six. She um, is creeped out by those um, those crazy goat eyes there. Yeah. So yeah. So we've got there's about thirteen or so of them there. Um, I'm not going to go through the rest of those ones there. Um, apart from number thirteen, which I found quite um, quite um, amusing, is that um, during a thunderstorm, Thor, the god of thunder, rode a chariot. Pulled by two goats, so you can't the stop there. You've got to try and say their names. <laughs> their names are Tan Tan Grizzly and Tan Tan Gost, I think. But um, I've completely butchered their names. I'm sure we'll get lots of emails <laughs> about my my pronunciation there, Mark. Um, yeah, so there we go. A nice little feel good story about goats. And yes, I um, I do look forward to potentially having having a goat or two um, in the future to chew all those weeds and, and mow my lawn in the backyard. And I can just sit sit and read a book and um, sit quietly and drink a beer and saying I'm doing the right thing here. I'm, I'm feeding a goat and I'm cleaning the weeds, clearing the weeds at the same time. <laughs> and so my last story, Brendan, um, is, um, is a, a bit of an extensive uh, science article published recently in The Atlantic um, which asks the question, are cities making animals smarter? And um, it basically focuses on um, a research project in uh, Colombo, Sri Lanka, which um, the subject um, of the study, the study was carried out by Anya Ratnayanka, um, uh, who... Um, was initially drawn to uh, to um, uh, have a look at the problem by the the um, loss of some of the koi carp in uh, some of the gardens in Colombo, and um, some of these koi carp, as you well know, Brendan, are very very expensive animals, and um, so if they're disappearing, um, people do start to get towy, and so uh, in Security cameras were placed and identified a cat as the um, predator taking the the, uh, the the koi, but it wasn't a feral house cat or um, or uh, anything like that. It was uh, um, one of the um, the fishing cats, the um, wild cats from Southeast Asia. Um, but the amazing thing about um, this fishing cat was that. Um, that it was doing a bloody awesome job of living in a city. Um, so in their usual uh, 
life. They would live in swamps, specifically the reedy wetlands that um, that uh, tend to uh, be common throughout Southeast Asia, um, and they swim. They've got uh, uh, a laterally flattened tail that acts a little bit like a rudder, um, and they have partially webbed feet uh, through you know that assists them to swim. Um, they dive um, from riverbanks into the water to catch fish. Um, but um, this was a new phenomenon, the cats wandering around urban environments and in particular finding ponds and, uh, and catching fish. Um, they would, um, they, and so they caught a couple of these cats up and, uh, and whacked collars on them, followed their, their trail, and um, it led to, uh, you know, observations that they were doing a whole bunch of uh, unusual things for their species, and it begged the question... Um, that, uh, um, you know, are they actually learning new things? Are the cat's brains actually changing um, in order to facilitate them coping better in these urban environments? Um, and I often think the same thing about animals like, you know, our foxes, the uh, feral foxes that wander around our urban environments that, um, you know, has there been an evolutionary process that leads to those animals uh, having a different um, mental process, a different size brain, a different um, ability to cope with the complex and changing problems that occur in cities rather than uh, just be familiar with their routine, you know, the wild places that they uh, that they have evolved from. Yes, and I... Th- Imagine it would be interesting to see what would happen if you took some of those um, ones that have been urbanised, if that's a term, and, and then place them in the non-urban areas to see how, how they would cope. Not that they'd ever um, get permission to do a study like that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing how they do adapt, and it reminds me of another another um, story um, very similar, and that's the, the leopards that... Um, that um, um, live quite closely. Oh, actually, you've killed a few humans um, in in Mumbai, Mark, um, and um, they've. It's a heavily populated area, and yet there's, there's lots of them, um, lots of them surviving quite well in that region. And I will talk about that with another um, at another um, podcast, just as, as a separate news item, which which. The reason why I'm hesitating here, it may have been um, in the past or it may be in the future because I'm not quite sure when we are going to post this particular podcast. So I may have already spoken about Mumbai's leopards or it may yet to um, uh, to occur, yes. So great news story. Yes, so some interesting news story there. Lots of goats, lots of goats uh, and and heroic husky who – who um, who is now a bit of a Facebook um, hero, and you can buy a T-shirt about, and um, some other some cats that like um, like um, that are perhaps um, a thief, um, a thief that was a cat, and a cat that was a thief. Um, those those um, interesting little cats in cats in Colombo, Mark. So we've got a, a I think it's a. A very interesting main topic um, this week, as it is every week, isn't it, Mark? And, and we are going to, going to talk about tail and limb amputations and partial limb amputations in, in reptiles because I don't know about you, Mark, and this is the reason why I suggested this particular topic as our main topic this week. Um, 
I see a lot of these and I perform a lot of partial limb amputations and tail amputations in in reptiles and I'd like to know your thoughts on whether you do the same and and, and um, the, um, your, your considerations about why we see so many of these. Um, I mean, I've got my answer of why I think that happens and and I did one this week, Mark. I, I amput partial amputation of a of a large six kilogram diamond python um, tip of the tail, and I end up having to take the a lot further, probably about ten centimeters further up towards the base of the tail um, than I would have liked, um, just because I wanted to make sure we get to the viable area so it would heal correctly and properly. Um, so yeah, Mark, that's our topic for this week. So why do you think we see so many of these? I think it's an... Or do you, do you see well, that? Well, you've hit the nail on the head to start with. I, I think um, it is a particularly common thing for us to see. We definitely, um, like you, I've already done a couple this week. I've got one in hospital at the moment, uh, a, um, a shingleback who has a, um, uh, um, an osteomyelitis in one of the forelegs. And um, so... Uh, that one will end up being an amputation. Um, I think, well, I'm really interested to hear your theory because I've formulated one of Mark's world-famous hypotheses that has no basis in um, any research data or uh, solid evidence, anything more than the vague meanderings of my mind. Um, I think that um, it's husbandry, Brendan. I think it's... uh, the fact that these animals are largely sedentary, I think that um, uh, there are a number of things that are done to reptiles that uh, make it more likely that they will have uh, embolic events um, and the combination of being sedentary and uh, maybe the, the uh, likelihood that there's a little bacterial thrombus um, tends to block up those small blood vessels um, and lead to complications at the periphery of the animal. Um, and um, and just like you, we see a lot of those, um, a lot of snakes. And, and I think uh, um, some of the snakes we get to see are complicated by relatively modest trauma, um, the design of their cages or um, uh, the structures within their enclosures, the furniture within their enclosures can predispose them to uh, little accidents and um, those accidents in light of their poor perfusion, in light of the likelihood of thrombus formation and um, and the fact that the animals just don't move around like they do in the wild and don't develop the same um, perfusion, circulation, blood pressure uh, uh, activities that they would in the wild. I think all these things combine to... Um, to make it likely they'll end up with um, either necrosis uh, of the tail or one of the limbs. Yes, I agree completely. Husbandry, oh, husbandry, husbandry, husbandry. And I think there's two other aspects to that, which are husbandry-related as well, Mark, and that is um, cage-made injuries. And the classic one there is we do lots and lots of partial tail amputations oh, and mainly mainly partial limb amputations amputations actually with with young uh, bitter dragons and typically it's what happens is somebody purchases several bitter, young bitter dragons and they they grow disproportionately we have we have one or more that um, end up bullying often the other ones and they they 
they bask more under the UV and and eat more, so we get a, a rapid change and a differential with the with the sizes of them. So we we strongly advise clients to separate bearded dragons based on size, not on age. Um, so once you start to get one or more. Um, that is that are a fair bit bigger than the others. They need to put them in separate enclosures. So yeah, cage mane injuries are very common with the bearded dragons, and and the other other reptile species that we see a lot of um, injuries to the tail and and the tail base, but also the hind legs, especially uh, turtles. Mark, um, I don't know whether you see the same. So we see a turtle that chases the, another turtle around the tank, and they nip them around um, on the on the back of those um, hind legs or, or the tail base there. So it's not rare. And I think I did a, a, a partial limb amputation in a, in a turtle about three weeks ago um, for that very reason. So so that's another common one, cage-made injuries. But again, that all gets back to, to inadequate husbandry or, or owners not realising that you need to separate um, animals that maybe you may have too many in there in the um, one enclosure or that we may have some bullying going on. And the other husbandry-related one I see, I think, especially, especially with certain species of lizards, the shinglebacks are, are one of those marks, is the constricting injuries we get with an, a dissectiasis, so an abnormal shed. So what happens is um, we, we then end up having the equivalent of an elastic band around a toe um, and it causes necrosis of that toe and um, and then we can often get that creeping, I usually call it a dry gangrene type condition mark that then potentially creeps up the limb. Um, so we, and we'll get on to the surgical technique in a minute that um, we end up wanting to make sure that we remove the um, affected area and, and have some um, good normal tissue there. So we do a partial amputation a, a good centimetre or so above where we see the the lesion there. So do you see those ones as well, Mark? Yeah, definitely the case, Brendan. And the um, Taliqua genus, the um, shinglebacks and blue tongues, um, their habit of living on the ground, they're, they're relatively small um, limb size, and they just seem to, even in, this is probably the only situation that I would um, accept that wild um, animals also suffer from the same problem. Um, they do develop um, issues with shedding those uh, rings of scales from the toes and they can, uh, they can build up and, as you said, act as a tourniquet um, and, uh, and then lead to compromised blood supply and, and uh dry gangrene, the, the necrosis of the tissue, um, and uh, and they'll often break off. The interesting thing about the wild lizards um, that we find uh, is that they seem to cope remarkably well without the toes, first of all, and then even, as you said, the the um, the, the uh, limb can, you know, the whole uh, bottom part of the limb can go, um, but the lizards seem to cope admirably in any case. Um, so um, when it's a good indication for us that amputating this damaged tissue, uh, uh, partially amputating a limb or whatever, um, does not make a big problem for their quality of life. But uh, obviously we don't want to have to do it repeatedly. So getting that husbandry right is really important, Brendan. Yeah, and that's where it, it, it ties in with the 
The other husbandry aspects of hygiene and that if they're in a pretty grotty enclosure, they don't. the owners may not be changing that substrate very often or, or ever. And I, I, I'm still amazed to, to this day of uh, how many... How many um, people who keep reptiles may never disinfect their enclosure at all and they regard disinfecting their enclosure as uh, taking their sand that they might have as a substrate and putting it through a sieve and that's their disinfection um, method. And, um, yeah, so so I think hygiene's linked in with some of those as well. And, and then it ties in with all the other husbandry aspects of reptiles like humidity um, causing or contributing to that dissectiasis with them and um, potentially the bugs that are jumping in there as well. So um, I'd be interested with your thoughts on the partial tail amputations of the snakes, Mark, and the one that I did earlier this week may have initially started as a as a um, abnormal shed cycle with that particular snake. But um, what are your thoughts about these ones? What percentage of them are are that type of condition, or are they tied in with all the other other possible causes, including the one that you? Um, mentioned as a as a reasonable hypothesis as far as the uh, circulation problems well i think we the the association i see in the ones that uh, i get to look at is that um is that i suppose there's two groups um there's those that uh that it's a bit of a one-dimensional problem that they're otherwise healthy snakes that uh that have uh, a piece of um uh, dead tissue at the end of their tail but much more commonly we find these guys uh, have tail problems uh, in in the context of um, significant problems elsewhere so they may well have um, you know a, a stomatitis or a, um, a, 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 a ulcerative dermatitis uh, of the ventral uh the scales on their belly these other illnesses make me very suspicious that they're um that they're uh, throwing bacterial um thromboemboli and uh, that we're in a situation where um, we as you highlighted we need to give ourselves a significant margin um uh, because the uh, supply the blood supply um is likely to be compromised for a considerable distance by the um, you know, not just at the level of the demarcation between living and dead tissue, but um, there's likely to be an inflammatory response from there and possibly even other locations where um, an embolus has, um, has packed in and blocked off some more blood vessels. The other thing I find when we do these, Brendan, I don't know, and once again, I'm interested in your point of view, is that um, we definitely find uh, that there's a point of often a point of demarcation between clearly dead tissue and clearly live tissue um, and uh, those ones tend to be a little bit easier to make decision making processes around as you said we'll give ourselves a couple of centimeters of live tissue and make the amputation there um, but do you see a lot of ones where the the uh the grade between the dead tissue and the live tissue is uh, is not as clear, Brendan. I do see them. I think as as you most of them are the opposite, where we see an obvious an obvious demarcation. And it makes that that surgical um, treatment quite um, 
oh, I was going to say quite easy, but easier because even some of them end up um, creeping back in, in the long run. And that's where I think um, paying attention to the post-op care, which we'll talk about in a sec, is really important. But, yeah, um, and I think that snake I did this week was was similar to that. And I mentioned at the start that I, I took another 10 centimetres or so off the tip of this snake past where where I thought the problem was. And that was because when I had it anaesthetised, and I think we'll get into, we won't talk about anaesthetics with them, but we'll talk about the actual surgical technique with these. I palpated that tail, the affected area of the tail, and um, it was fairly stiff. And, and I'm sure a lot of people have encountered these necrotic um limbs and extremities in reptiles and we end up with this basically like a, a piece of wood um, with, with 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 the affected area but past that demarked area mark it was still just didn't feel quite right to me and it was um, there was some flexion there but um, certainly not normal so I, oh, I went Brendan, another 10 cent. I love this it's the vibe it's just the vibe um, I, I know, vibe? well I'm getting that that's that I, I was just uh, thinking about one of the students who asked exactly this question: "Where are you going to cut?" and um, and it is a really difficult thing to say um, that um, that you know that there's a difference in the texture of the tissue that the way that the tail flows over your hand um, when the snake is anaesthetized. There is definitely what you say with experience. Um, this is one of those things that you you do need to. Um, palpate a lot of reptile tails to be able to say look just there the texture is significantly different and uh, and that probably represents you know edema in the tissue indicating that there's infection and damage there and of course edema in the tissue will um, uh, mean that the blood vessels can't be as well perfused and the tissue is going to be hypoxic and if you traumatize that tissue um, and uh, and um expected to heal you 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 i like your term um creeping these problems are often creeping up the yes. tail uh, because yes. if you don't get this so you are so doing it again yes so what um talk us through your technique then for let's let's stick with the snake tail um your technique of doing that amputation you've identified the region where there is viable tissue or you think there is viable tissue what's the next step um well i suppose you uh, once you've got uh, uh, viable tissue you make uh, um, skin incisions um, you make those uh, um, i usually try and make them a little bit uh, what's the right description c-shaped um, so that there's a bow in the incision that's aimed towards the the uh, end of the tail um, I undermine the skin only a little distance. I don't think reptile skin is very well perfused and you can t can't take like huge sections of it and remove it from its um, underlying uh, subcutaneous tissue and uh, hope to keep it viable. So it's only, you know, one or two scales that I would go up further um, and then I would uh, look to make an incision into the muscle belly um, and uh, aim that incision um, cranially so that I end up with, a, um, you know, a, I suppose a V-shape uh, um, uh, as I reach the spinal cord, if you were to look at it from the top. Um, and um, 
do that on both sides. Uh, there is a, um, that, as we well know, the, the uh, blood vessels immediately ventral to the uh, vertebral column. It's good to isolate those and um, maybe place a um, encircling ligature on them, uh, hemoclip sometimes, um, and then uh, section the vertebra between um, two of the uh, section, the spinal cord, the uh, uh, spine between two adjacent vertebra, um, and uh, and then I have a bit of a, a V, um, a bit of a belly of muscle that I can sew over the end of the bone, um, and uh, then we sew the suit, the skin over the the uh, end of that, um, providing adequate protection for the the bone um, that will be deeply covered by the muscle. I don't know that I've explained that very well, Brendan. I was I was in rapture listening to that, Mark. It was fantastic. Yes, so I do very similar. I make a little scalloped incision scalloped, there. And, that's uh, the word I was looking for. <laughs> and um, and uh, undermine the tissue slightly, um, not too much, like you said. And it's very tightly adhered, isn't it? The skin of um, skin of the uh, snake's tail to the underlying musculature um, and structures there, and. Uh, then try, I, I must admit I have difficulty identifying the vessels, but I don't panic about that because sometimes, in the, especially in the middle to smaller size snakes, I don't often um, tie off those vessels and I do find that um, perhaps just trying to clamp the area around where the muscle and the, and the tendons are and, and is is where that vessel is and just clamp it for a short period of time, it does does um, stop the bleeding and I don't need to do anything more with it. Um, and then, um, yeah, and, 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 and as, you, as you mentioned, try and um, sever the vertebra in between, well, we'll sever the spinal cord in between two vertebra and, and similar to what's taught with a tail amputation in a dog or a cat or any other species, I'd expect um, trying to leave some soft tissue there that you can suture across or bring across the stump of the of the bone there to, to protect it. And I, um, most of the time I just do two uh, horizontal um, mattress sutures um, of non non-absorbable um, suture material to oppose the, the edges of the skin then, Mark. And um, these days I tend to be um, fairly careful, try not to uh, tie them too tight. I t- try to tie them almost not loosely but but but, but very gently because I don't want um, too much pressure um, across that skin suture line there because, as you mentioned before, the potential that there isn't much blood supply to the to the areas where the scales, the skin there, of the, um, I think that's one of the causes of potential wound breakdown. One other thing I, I, I do less often these days, Mark, and I used to do it all the time with these tail amputations, I still do it with the limb amputations, and we'll briefly run through that as well, um, is I, 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 I used to always do a ring block local anaesthetic um, above the region where I am doing the partial tail amputation and I've stopped doing that because I had a couple that that then um, post-operatively the, the, the creeping dry, dry gangrene um, returned and I was suspicious that um, me poking a needle in there further up was causing further damage um, to viable tissue at that stage and and contributing to the fact that we had um, progression of the the injury there do you use local 
um, in these or splash blocks in them or, or nothing? Well, it's interesting that, uh, as as happens often on this podcast, um, I've had precisely the same experience that um, in my zeal to uh, facilitate a, a uh, minimally painful surgical field, I've um, done ring blocks and I do think that uh, infiltrating the area with... Um, with local anaesthetic above the surgical site has predisposed to um, to progression and the requirement for subsequent surgical resection. Um, but I do at this stage where um, we cut across the um, the uh, spinal cord when we section the spinal cord, um, I do uh, put a couple of drops of uh, bupivacaine at that location um, just on the the basis that we're cutting across some important nerves, um, and that doesn't that splash block at the the uh, level of the vertebra doesn't seem to be associated with the same um, issue of uh, breakdown. Yes, yes, ah, yes, and I do. So with the if we um, well, we need to talk about bandaging and post op care in a sec. But if we just move on to doing the amp- partial amputations of the of the limbs of the lizards and, and the chelonians, the turtles, tortoises, um, I do do a, a um, local anaesthetic block up above the region where I am removing that limb and it doesn't seem to cause any issues. Um, the good news about do, doing partial amputations of of a lot of these species, especially the bearded dragons, is they cope fantastically well, don't they, Mark? So I've, I've done lots of surgeries on these where... Um, and, and still seeing these patients where they have little stumps and um, they're cop- coping quite well, whereas other species for those those vets um, without experience with, with amputating, doing partial amputations, they may consider that they have to do a full leg amputation and we certainly don't need to do that, do we, Mark? That's exactly right, Brendan. The, the uh, you know, in many other species where they would weight bear on the uh, limb and that weight bearing uh, would cause damage to the surgical side or nearby. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case. The, um, the uh, even though they do weight bear on and use the stump to propel themselves while they're climbing and whatnot, um, there doesn't seem to be one particular point on the foot where they uh, rest so much that it leads to ongoing problems. And so we are pretty pleased always to um, just cut the dead tissue and a little bit more and leave whatever we can in place. Yes. So what's your post-op uh, treatment? So what do you bandage them? Do you not bandage these tails and these limbs? And and what sort of bandage do you use and when do you change it? Well, I did when I don't bandage them, Brendan. I um, once was a big fan of um, making sure the, the – uh, the wound, surgical wound was adequately protected and um, and there are particular species of snakes where we've had to do this and uh, they're notorious for soiling their enclosure fairly um, extensively and so making it likely that they're going to have trouble with infectious processes. But um, I've always found that uh, the bandages, you know, the naturally conical tail of the the uh, snake makes it very difficult to attach something without considerable um, adhesive material, and uh, and I'm, I've, I I worry that that does predispose us to um, additional problems creeping up the tail. So um, as long as the surgery is good and the sutures look nice, we just leave those tails uh, alone. 
interesting because I must admit I still banish the mark, so I I'm doing something completely wrong, aren't well, I? Well, different, uh, just different. Yes. <laughs> um, I must admit I do. T- so what I what I do with the ones um, which is ninety nine percent of them I still bandage. Um, I put a little bit of flamazine on it and a non stick dressing, and then just stick it down with a little bit of the short um, diameter. Uh, elastoplast type bandage mark and then that's changed in five to seven days or so but yes I, I hear you as far as the possibility that that um, leaving it off may be easier and 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 more effective and potentially prevent um, maybe some of those ones that have crept back are, are all due to the Brendan factor and um, of course that um, condition with them. So I think we need to, I think I need to do a bit of an experiment and, and start um, um, not bandaging a few and leaving a few bandages on and see if we, um, if there's any obvious um, differences with them. I think the hygiene bit you really hinted at there, Mark, didn't you, with um, them? And I really stressed to clients that they need to put them on basic sort of um, substrate so for instance with most of the snakes it would be just newspaper um, and they change it at least every day or twice a day so we're trying to be super hygienic um, for that post-operative period how long are you leaving those sutures in for Mark? We leave them in for quite a long time Brendan Um, we you were talking about uh, using non-absorbable sutures um, and we frequently end up these days using um, one of the synthetic absorbable sutures. Um, I don't, they, they're nominally absorbable sutures, but um, in most reptiles, I don't find that uh, that they do absorb significantly over the period of time that we leave them in for. Um, so they functionally are non-absorbable in my hands. But we would leave them in place for probably uh, between four and six weeks would be our usual time course we leave them in for quite a long time well very similar to what i do and i think we did talk about um, reptile surgery in a previous podcast and we did mention that the healing time with reptile skin and that we do need to leave those sutures in for several more weeks than we would consider in in another species are you covering their their these these um, reptiles with any with any medications during that um period where the skin is healing mark well it does i definitely um uh, am looking to provide them with um uh, adequate pain relief brendan i do think that um while they're not uh rat like in their desire to ruin their wounds um certainly they're not beyond um gently giving something a uh, uh, rub and irritating it enough to set off a problem if they feel sore. And the other thing I think is that they, their degree of perfusion depends significantly on their levels of activity. And um, if they're uncomfortable, they will be inert. And so I think um, uh, using one of the mu agonists at a relatively high dose, um, it's certainly an important thing for at least the first uh week or 10 days after the procedure as far as antibiotics go you know my um my passion for not using the bloody things unless i absolutely have to um and so if i have one of those snakes that has stomatitis or uh, ventral ulcerative dermatitis then obviously i would uh, use antibiotics in the context of those other 
more widespread infections. But if I've got um, a snake that is otherwise healthy and uh, seems to have had uh, maybe a, you know gotten its tail jammed in the the uh, door um, and uh, had its blood supply compromised by the trauma and bruising as a result of that sort of event, um, then it's quite likely that we won't use antibiotics with them, Brendan. Do you, uh, I'm trying to think, I think it might have been um, Bob Donnelly, Robert Donnelly, our good friend. I think he has played around with or used some products that, that may help with perfusion to the extremities and, and um, with, with capillaries, et cetera, and, and blood circulation products. Have you ever, have you played with those types of products with these these um, these cases? No, I have not. But I do think, um, you know, I think it is a, a potential area of uh, um, research and uh, possibly even future therapy because I, I it definitely, the rate of change of the amount of blood flow um, that the reptiles can exert. You know, it's not the same as in mammals where um, the blood flow is, um, you know, generous all the time. There are times with some tissues in reptiles' bodies where the blood flow is almost absent um, and uh, their ability to survive that anoxia without becoming... um, uh, you know, uh, necrotic is at the very border of being able to stay alive, and that's why relatively modest trauma um, or um, minimal changes to the perfusion, minimal changes to you know a, a, an embolus that blocks up a, a single blood vessel can be enough to produce these areas of necrosis. Yes, I agree, and I I, I haven't use those uh, products or medications um, myself so I have no experience with them we'll have to we'll have to chat to Bob and we'll ha- we will have to interview Bob as one of our um, our um, key subjects to interview we need to put on the list because I'm sure it will be quite entertaining so the next time we meet up with um, bird Bob uh, we will add him to the list of people to to do a special on Mark um, does that sound like a good that idea sounds like an excellent idea I think he would be a very well, we already know he's a very entertaining person to talk to and we'd love to share him with everyone. Very colourful, very flowery, I think he will be. He'd love that um, description of him. Um, so, yes, um, hopefully that's helped our listeners, Mark, with limb and tail amputations in reptiles. And and I think the, the key factors there, look, it's the sort of things we talk about all the time, isn't it, Mark? It's husbandry looking at the underlying conditions that contribute to these factors and and often it's inadequate or poor husbandry that the client may or may not be aware of and and have a go at these that uh, I, I find them perversely quite quite um, satisfying these partial limb amputations in them um, and as you mentioned a few episodes ago mark um, a chance to cut is a chance to cure and um um, majority of these do um, fantastically well. I usually quote to my client, to my clients. I say to them, probably ninety percent plus of these do do excellent, and we don't have any complicating factors with them. So um, I don't know what your results with them are, Mark, but I find them a satisfying surgery to do, and um, everybody wins in the end, apart from the limb that's left behind <laughs> at the end. There, um, the animal, the animal's in a lot less discomfort, and uh, we don't have have to repeat the process if all goes to plan 
I agree with you in, uh, as usual, uh, completely and utterly, Brendan. But I was going to just point out, um, uh, you mentioned the use of uh, flamazine in your bandage. Um, and um, yes. while my bandages routinely fall off and so I've given them away, I do still take advantage of the uh, um, uh, flamazine as a topical um, uh, antiseptic um, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, um, it helps to keep the wound clean and healthy and uh, promote um, um, scar tissue formation that's unaffected by those bugs that we usually see. So I do take advantage of the flamazine. I think it's an excellent little tip in the the uh, recovery of these um, amputations, of applying a bit of that uh, wound care topically, even if you can't put the bandage on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I think with that, Mark, we'll um, with your little tip there. Um, I think we will leave leave it at that, and we thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you all again next week. Vetgurus.com. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.